Well, today we are starting off a new sermon series for this fall entitled Always Ready. And we get the title from one of the verses that was just read by Jessica out of 1 Peter through 15, where Paul, or excuse me, Peter tells us to always be ready to give the reason for the hope that's within us. And so the sermon series, in a sense, is we're going to be talking about apologetics. And apologetics is really a term which means uh, defending the faith, being able to not only say why, what we believe, but why we believe it, which I think is increasingly important in our world today. A lot of the things that are givens in the past are no longer givens. So we'll be looking at things like uh, the existence of God today. Um, why do bad things happen to good people? The whole problem of pain and suffering in a good God the authority of Scripture, and so many other topics. But today we want to begin with the existence of God. And I know that today that there's probably different categories of people here, some who are convinced and feel ready to explain why they believe what they believe, some who know what they believe but don't feel prepared to, to defend the faith, some who are maybe a little unsure, a little unsteady about what they believe, but they're curious and leaning in this direction, and some perhaps who don't believe but they're here maybe out of respect for a family member or a spouse, or they just simply are curious and, and have some questions. And the goal, of course, uh, my goal is by the end of the sermon series, is that, uh, that, that you'll be convinced and you'll feel more prepared and ready to give the reason for the hope that is within you. So we're beginning with the existence of God. And uh, these are not going to be airtight proofs for the existence of God, because if they were, there would be no room or need for faith. But the question isn't really, can you prove God beyond the shadow of a doubt? But rather, does believing in God and having faith and trust in God make more sense than basing your life on the alternative that there is no God out there? And so I want to run through what you might kind of see as clues or indicators that point to God. And we're going to begin with this. Indicator one is the universe exists. The first indicator we can put in the form of a question. How did the universe get started? Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, arguably the most important discovery of the last uh, of, of this of this century, this past century, um, is this idea of the universe having a beginning. And it's popularly known as the Big Bang Theory. Now, when you hear Big Bang Theory, some of you may instantly jump to the sitcom, you know, with those crazy kind of goofy eccentric physicists highlighted by Sheldon Cooper. But we're talking about the scientific, you know, theory of the Big Bang Theory. And in previous centuries, 19th century and before, the vast majority of scientists did not believe that the universe had a beginning, that it was pre-existent. And there was actually a great deal of resistance to this notion of the Big Bang Theory. There's a fascinating little book called uh, The First Three Minutes, and it's about the beginning of our universe. And it's hard for me to wrap my arms around the idea, but physicists tell us that in the beginning, all the matter of the universe was compressed into a point of infinite density, which is spoken of as the singularity. Now, imagine the universe, the entire universe, everything that is out there existing as one tiny point smaller than the atom. And the universe has a beginning. It was not, and now it is. In Genesis, it says that, that there was nothing, and God spoke, and everything came into existence. And, and this idea that uh, points us to something like God. Let me explain. Every beginning has to have a cause. Nothing just magically pops into existence. 
A tree doesn't just pop up in your backyard out of nothing. A cell phone doesn't just appear in your hand. Or a car doesn't just pop into existence on your driveway. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. And so the universe has a beginning, therefore something caused the universe. Think about the alternative. The alternative is that something can come from nothing. Again, the idea of nothing is, is hard for us to grasp. Nothing would mean complete blank emptiness. No space, no time, no matter, no energy, not even a void because a void connotes boundaries. Nothing. And then with no explanation, no cause, the universe just pops into being. You cannot get nothing from something or something from nothing. Now, if you want to be an, an atheist, the existence of the Big Bang Theory is what might be thought of as an inconvenient truth. For in that case, the physical universe must have been produced by something that's not physical. The existence of the universe itself points to the existence of something beyond the universe, something that does not depend on anything else for its existence, something of immense power, something that has a quality like what we think of as a, as a great mind of a supreme being, being, of something that is not physical, which is exactly what Paul was writing about 2,000 years ago to the church at Rome. He wrote this in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, in other words, something that's capable of existing apart from or depending upon anything else, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So the existence of the universe is a reason for believing, but it's not the, not the only one. Indicator two, the universe is fine-tuned to support life. Uh, there's a pastor called, uh, named Tim Keller, and he calls this, 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 uh, this fine-tuning, the universe being fine-tuned to support life, he calls it the cosmic welcome mat. I kind of like that, the cosmic welcome mat. And a cosmic welcome mat refers to an oddity about our universe that physicists, secular or, or religious, have come to call the anthropic principle. And it's from the Greek word anthropos, which means man or human being. And the universe seems to be fine-tuned to be the kind of place that can support life. It wouldn't have to be that way, but it is. And there are a striking number of conditions or contingencies that have to be in place in biologically and, and physically that has to be just right to arise from the universe. And those conditions turn out to be just right for us, thankfully. For example, the proportion of the mass of a neutron of hydrogen that's converted to energy during nuclear fusion is 0 0.007. If it were 0 0.006, not much of a difference. The whole universe would be hydrogen, there would be no life. If it were 0 0.008, there would be no hydrogen and there would be no life. The proportions are exactly right to produce life. Another example, water. Water has a unique quality. As water gets colder, it contracts until it freezes and then it expands. And if it did not have this very strange property, oceans and lakes would freeze from the bottom up and aquatic life would cease to exist and life would as well in general. And so there are dozens of variables like this. The strength of gravity, properties of, of carbon, the exact rate of the expansion of the Big Bang, the DNA structure, and on and on in the universe, in our planet, in our biology, that have to be exactly fine-tuned for life to exist. Another example, the precise orbit of the Earth. 
its distance from the sun, the existence of a moon that tilts exactly 23.5 degrees on the earth tilted. It makes a climate that can sustain life. Uh, Physicists call this the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. When Copernicus demonstrated that the earth revolves around the sun rather than vice versa, a number of people said in subsequent centuries, well, the human race will just have to recognize that everything doesn't revolve around us. We're accidents in this vast, huge universe. But instead, particularly in recent decades, we have discovered that the universe looks strangely like it was designed precisely that so we could exist. A physicist by the name of Freeman Dyson said, it's as if the universe saw us coming. So this anthropic principle, the idea that the universe is fine-tuned to support life, is a good reason to believe in God, but not the only one. Indicator number three, we all have a hunger for meaning. We all have a hunger for purpose and meaning, and I believe that that points to the existence of God. You know, in the history of the church, birth is marked by what? Christenings, baptisms, or dedications. As far as I know, um, there are no atheist ceremonies to mark the arrival of human life. Why is that? I mean, I wonder what would get said to a little baby on such an occasion. Maybe something like this. Little baby, you're a little blob of carbon. A random collection of molecules on an insignificant speck of planet revolving around a minor league star that will soon burn itself out and destroy all known life forms. And long before that, you will personally have rotted and decayed, and your momentary existence will be eternally unremembered and without meaning or significance. By the way, have a good life. Hard to picture that kind of catching on. A Yale professor by the name of Nicholas Wolterstorff has written a fabulous book about justice. And in the book, he raises this question, why do human beings have dignity? Why do we have worth? Why do we have rights? And his book is really an attempt to found justice on this notion of human rights, in which he believes are very important, and they are. And in that attempt, he poses this question. If children are beaten, if women are marginalized, we all have the sense that that is wrong. Why do we have the sense that that is wrong? You know, it turns out that secularism has a very hard time establishing a foundation for human worth and rights. Not to say that secularists don't, have, don't value human rights. They certainly do. But it's hard to find something to ground them in. And if you ground them in, say, certain human capacities and abilities, then when those abilities and capacities diminish, to that same extent, those rights would diminish. But we have this sense that all human beings, whatever their IQ, whatever their capacities and abilities, have value and worth and basic rights. And there is simply not a better foundation for this reality than that human beings are valuable to a creator who has made them and loves them, and that we therefore are to value and love others as well. And, and, and over time, out of that notion, there grew an explosion of valuing human rights that, that has become so woven into our existence and our world today that we forget it has not always been that way or always been that apparent. We have documents that say things like we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. 
And the fact that we hunger for meaning, for worth, does not prove that meaning exists. But we have a hunger for food, and it would be a strange world if food did not exist in our world. We have a thirst for water. It would be a strange world if water did not exist in our world. We have an appetite for sexual intimacy. It would be a very strange universe if no such thing existed. And we have a hunger for meaning and purpose. And it strikes me it would be very strange to have a hunger for meaning and purpose, this drive for something beyond ourselves in a meaningless universe. Indicator four, we believe that there's a moral standard, whether we would agree or acknowledge this or not. We, we believe instinctively that there is a moral standard. Um, this is what's called the argument for arguing. Okay, How many of you have had arguments? I'm sure everybody here. How many of you have had an argument maybe even this morning, getting ready for church? A few of you don't have to say that. Uh, believe it or not, Nancy and I sometimes argue. It happens in our house. Um, and often the arguments are about division of labor around the house. And the usual situation is that Nancy feels that I do way too much around the house. Yeah, you know, and and uh, she's concerned for my health and my rest. She wants me to relax and take it easy. And so she jumps in and that leads to battling and arguing because I want to do more. So anyhow, C.S. Lewis wrote wonderfully about arguing in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, when people are arguing, you almost never hear them say, do what I want because I'm stronger and more powerful and I can make you do it anyway. When we argue, we actually say things like, it's not fair. It's not right. It shouldn't be that way. It's not just. In other words, when we argue, we betray the truth that we believe that there is a moral standard. And it exists quite independently of our own preferences. We all exhibit this. Now, I know somebody might well claim to believe in relativism, this, this idea that value is really just a matter of, of personal preferences. But I guarantee you, if you attack one of their values, if you say something like, well, I think prejudice is okay, you know, or I think exploiting women is fine, you will see that they do not think that those are personal preferences only. They believe those things are morally wrong, independent of how anybody might happen to feel about them. We all know that there are transcendent moral realities and that they exist independent of our personal preferences. The Apostle Paul wrote about this again in Romans, this time chapter 2. He writes, they know the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. In other words, we know as human beings that there is right and there is wrong. He writes, they know the requirements of the law, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending. And so when we do something wrong and we feel guilt, in a sense we're saying, I know there's a right and wrong. When we do something good or we affirm somebody doing something good, we are saying there's a right and there's a wrong. These are not just personal preferences. These are very central dynamics to the human condition. The fact that our knowing Right and wrong is baked into our universe and into our very being as human beings is a very powerful reason for believing in God, but it's not the only one. Indicator five, the explosion of the early church. We might call this the second Big Bang, the explosion of the early church in the first century. Because it's really quite astonishing. The odds were not against this small sect of people in this vast, powerful uh, Roman Empire 
the odds were not very good that they were going to survive, much less thrive and eventually outlive and surpass the Roman Empire. You know, they began with this whole idea that, that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And we all know that we have an expiration date, right? That there will come a point when we breathe our last breath. And the human race has always understood that dead people tend to stay dead. And yet they claim that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. There are all sorts of messianic figures in Jesus' time. Charismatic leaders and so on and so forth. They were all executed by Rome. And the movements died. And yet, as a matter of historical record and reality, a massive community of a radically different nature springs up virtually overnight. How do we account for that? How did a group of deeply monotheistic Jews come to worship a human being as divine virtually overnight? How did Christianity explode so rapidly with such power as to overtake the Roman Empire in such a short period of time? Virtually all the disciples and early leaders in the church were persecuted, and many of them, most of them, died for their faith in Christ, believing he was the Messiah, the Son of God, risen from the dead. How do we account for that? The French thinker Pascal wrote, I tend to believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. People simply do not die for what they know beyond the shadow of a doubt is a lie. Might try to profit from a lie, but they do not sacrifice their lives for it. And so the explosion of the earlier church is also a powerful reason to believe in God. Indicator number six, the last one we're going to look at. There's more, but this is the last one we'll look at today. The person of Jesus Christ shines through in our world and through the lives of transformed people. I've seen this time and again. I visited uh, the elderly in nursing homes. Some of them, their minds and bodies are declining. They should be depressed. They should be down. They should be despairing. And yet, I see joy. And I see grace. And I see hope. I see meaning and purpose because the person of Jesus Christ has changed their lives. And he shines through their circumstances. I I visited people in prisons who are going to be there for a very long time. They should be bitter. They should be angry. They should be thinking about nothing but themselves and their own survival. And yet, I've seen peace and I've seen joy and I've seen hope. Despite the fact that they'll be in prison for a long time, I've seen hope because their lives have been changed by the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus shines through so brightly. You see it in Scripture. A murderous, self-righteous Pharisee named Saul encounters the living Jesus Christ. He's transformed. He becomes the Apostle Paul. And we have, and we have, and, his, and the gospel began to spread throughout the whole world. Time and time again throughout history, people's lives have been changed and transformed as Jesus Christ shines through. And there is no greater witness, no greater evidence for the existence of God than a changed life, totally sold out, surrendered, living and walking and breathing with Jesus Christ. Loving God and loving others, being like Jesus Christ in their every moments. I mean, how do we explain the impact of Jesus' life on this world? I mean, who else in human history holds a place like him? What is it about his life? In 1930, on an island in the Philippines, a missionary named Frank Lobach climbed a place called Signal Hill. He was depressed, he was down. 
he was really frustrated with the direction of his life. He felt like a failure. He would wanted to be a college president more than anything else, but he lost that by one vote. Three of his children had died of malaria. His wife and remaining child lived 900 miles away. And the people in the Philippines that he'd come to serve rejected him. And so he sat on the top of Signal Hill and he tried to talk to God. He poured out his heart and the strangest thing happened in that place. Jesus confronted him. Jesus encountered him and transformed him into a place of complete surrender. He was a missionary, for crying out loud. He'd been a Christian a long time, but he had never completely said, I'm all in for you, God. I want to be transformed. I'm, I'm giving up control and you're in charge now. And Jesus changed his life. And he began to listen and to speak and to walk and to trust and to live with Jesus Christ every moment of the day. Over the next 40 years, Frank made his life an experiment in that way of living. He became a leader of the world literacy movement. He became an advisor to U.S. presidents. He helped shape U.S. foreign policy after World War II. Listen to some of his own words. The most wonderful discovery that has ever come to me is that I do not have to wait until some future time for this glorious hour. I do not need to wait for any grace in the future. This hour can be heaven. Any hour for anybody can be so rich as God. For do you not see that God is trying experiments with human lives? That is why God asks us this question. How far will this man, will this woman, how far will you allow me to carry you this hour? God has created us for a living relationship with him. And anybody can have it. And it's changed, dramatically changed life. A life that forgives the unforgivable. That sacrifices in ways the world can understand. That loves the unlovable. That has priorities radically different than the world around them. Is a powerful evidence to the existence of a God who loves you. A God who sent his son to die for our sins. And a God who raised that very son, Jesus Christ, from the grave. God said through his prophet Isaiah this phrase. This is the one to whom I will look. To the humble and the contrite in spirit who who trembles at my word. When we humble ourselves, when we surrender our lives in abandon to Jesus Christ, our lives will be transformed. And that will be the greatest witness, a piece of evidence that can we offer, along with the other things we discuss and so many other reasons. I believe it takes more faith not to believe than to believe. I think the evidence is that strong. And so may we be people who, who, uh, who make sure that we're ready, always ready to give a reason for the hope that we have within us, the hope of the living Lord Jesus Christ, our King and Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you have created us in your image and created us for a relationship with you. We thank you for your creation which speaks to us. We look and we see creativity and design, special, a perfectly designed world and universe so that we can live and breathe and know you and enjoy the life you've, you've given us. Lord, we, we also know that we instinctively know that there's a with the very image of you within us is this need and desire for meaning and purpose. 
this, this desire for justice, this instinctive knowledge that there is a right and a wrong, that some things are simply wrong, and that there are certain things that we should do that are good and true. Lord, we thank you for these evidences which point to your existence. We thank you especially for the gift of your son, Jesus, and how he can change and transform lives. Now the person of Jesus Christ shining through history, shining through the church, shining through individual lives is truly the most powerful witness of all. And so Lord, help us to be mindful and prepared in love and respect to give the reason for the hope that we have in you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.